ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport for WFHB I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. The Associated Press and Terre Haute Tribune Star report that an oil well is being drilled on an industrial site owned by Indiana State University. The Pioneer Oil Company well is near the school's downtown Terre Haute campus. It's the company's fourth well on the university-owned property. Diane McKee, Indiana State Senior Vice President for Finance and Administration, says that the university has made about $900,000 in royalties since the first well was drilled in 2013. Royalties are to be used for facility maintenance. No oil wells are permitted on Indiana State University's main campus. Horizontal drilling is being used to reach oil beneath the campus and pumping gear is below ground. As winter sets in, those experiencing homelessness and housing instability are often at risk of injury or even death. As WFHB correspondent Annie Aguilla reports, the last reported death of a homeless individual in Monroe County was in 2013. Still, every winter, hundreds of people seek warmth and shelter at area service providers. Recent drops in temperature can exacerbate the problems faced by those experiencing homelessness. The National Health Care for the Homeless Council says hypothermia can set in at anywhere from 32 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. When it gets cold, body heat escapes through the skin and internal temperatures can drop to dangerous lows. In Bloomington, the Shalom Community Center provides shelter, hot meals, and winter clothing for the area's homeless. Executive Director Forrest Gilmore says that as the cold approaches, that need grows. We're hitting winter once again, and that creates life-threatening conditions for people as we get into these freezing temperatures. And so really important time to take extra care of our homeless neighbors and support them so that they can come out of the winter healthy and, and okay and safe. Gilmore says the area has had very few deaths over the last decade due to cold temperatures and that he can only remember one. Ian Tyler Stark moved to Bloomington from Cincinnati before becoming homeless. He was found dead in December of 2013 during the North American polar vortex when temperatures dropped below freezing. Stark was found in a stairwell at an apartment complex on Bloomington's north side. Bloomington police were reportedly unsure of his exact cause of death, but ruled out foul play. The day his body was found, Stark was wearing wet clothing and temperatures reached a low of 20 degrees. He was 24 years old. Gilmore says that the low amount of deaths in the area is due to services such as the Interfaith Winter Shelter, Shalom Community Center, and Wheeler Mission. Just in Bloomington, the area's estimated 300 homeless will face the cold with the help of centers like Shalom. 
Shalom does a number of things. We offer both a day and overnight shelter as well as showers, laundry, meals, that kind of thing. We have several housing programs to help people move out of homelessness into homes, long-term homes, and we try and pull all those services together to help people succeed in life. So a number of different supports, certainly with this time of year when cold is so strong, our emergency services are most pertinent in helping people get off the street and address the weather safely. It's not just deaths that have decreased in the last decade. There are fewer cases of frostbite, and temperatures in the past that would have taken fingers and toes don't, due to services from centers such as Shalom. The center works with 200 to 300 people a day, Gilmore says, and they often can't receive the help they need because of negative attitudes towards the homeless and those experiencing poverty. Well, we see in our center two to 300 people a day. We know that not all of those are homeless, but a significant number of them are. On any given day, we know that there's uh, well over 300 people experiencing homelessness in our community, adults and children. There's a significant number of people that have this basic kind of threat to their existence there because of the weather. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of negativity directed at people experiencing homelessness and experiencing poverty. And probably the thing that I think is most valuable is to just recognize and own the humanity of every person, including people in in awful circumstances, and to just honor them and support them and care for them and help them do better. As temperatures drop, the needs that the center addresses shift. Gilmore and his co-workers are now tasked with finding weather-appropriate clothing in addition to providing basic needs. At a most basic, we provide shelter. So we have day shelter at the Shalom Center itself from 8 to 4 every day. And then we have overnight shelter at Friends Place, which is from 5 until 7 the next morning. So that's the most basic support that we provide for people in this time of year. But we also provide meals so that people can, you know, obviously be fed and showers, laundry. But I think probably this time of year, what's most important in terms of how the community can engage is in terms of clothing. So making sure that people have proper winter clothing. So that they can handle the elements when they're outside well. And so that's everything from coats, hats, and gloves, long underwear, sleeping bag, people have to sleep outside, blanket, things of that sort that really help, especially this time of year. The center struggles with providing the resources those dealing with poverty and homelessness need in the winter. They don't receive as many donations as they need, Gilmore says, and some people have to go without. We are definitely not able to keep up right now with the need for cold weather clothing. And so we absolutely need support there. Hats, gloves, and coat in particular. Long underwear is really helpful too. Sleeping bags are really helpful. But uh, we're definitely not meeting the demand. And so there's people that are going without warm weather clothing. Sweatshirts are really valuable too at this time of year. Wool socks, you know, those kinds of things. Those wanting to donate items can bring them to the center located at 620 South Walnut Street in Bloomington, between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., seven days a week. For WFHB, I'm Annie Aguiar. Lawmakers in Indianapolis criticized Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb Monday. According to the Associated Press, legislators are up in arms over Holcomb's proposed expenditure of a $1 billion toll road lease. The Republican governor announced the plan to raise a billion dollars from leasing toll roads in September. The move will increase toll fees for commercial truck drivers. Holcomb's proposal allocates $600 million to finishing Interstate 69 and $190 million to highways. $100 million is to be dedicated to rural broadband access and $90 million 
to new hiking and biking trails. Another $20 million is being allocated by the governor's office to improve flight routes to and from Indianapolis International Airport. During a meeting of the State Budget Committee yesterday, legislators from both parties took turns criticizing the governor's decision to allocate the funds without legislative oversight. Holcomb maintains his office has the legal authority to spend toll road leasing money. 2019 is a budgetary year for the legislature, which convenes on January 3rd. A company called Northwest Innovation Works is proposing to build the world's largest frack gas to methanol refinery in Washington state. The refinery would consume a huge amount of fracked natural gas, one-third as much consumption as the entire state of Washington. A 2016 study by the Stockholm Environmental Institute found that the refinery could increase total global greenhouse gas emissions. The methanol refinery would require a new pipeline to carry frack gas. Landowners along the proposed route have already been notified that the company can use eminent domain to appropriate their land. A study from the Global Carbon Project predicts an increase in fossil fuel use this year. The group published its findings in Environmental Research Letters on the 5th of December. They find that fossil fuel emissions grew 2.7 percent over 2017 emissions. Deforestation and other sources of carbon dioxide are also expected to contribute to the emissions total. While overall fossil fuel use went up, coal use declined. However, carbon project researchers warn that this could be temporary. Developing countries needing electricity may invest in coal since it is less expensive. While renewables grew this year, the carbon project study says they aren't replacing fossil fuels. Instead, renewable energy is being developed in conjunction with traditional energy generation. The researchers state that replacement will happen when renewables can outcomplete fossil fuels. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for Get Out and Hike, showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. I'm here today talking with Marv Druin. He's going to be talking to us about the Peninsula Trail, which is one of the trails in the Deem Wilderness. Thank you for being here today, Marv. You're welcome, Jen. Nice to be here. So the uh, Peninsula Trail is a really incredible place to go. Uh, my wife and I uh, did our first hike there uh, about uh, six months ago, and uh, it was our first 10-mile uh, hike. And uh, I would consider the Peninsula Trail to be kind of a moderate trail. Um, it's uh, pretty kid-friendly. We saw a lot of dogs out there as well. It's a fairly flat trail. There's a little bit of up and down to it, but it's not so challenging uh, that it's uh, you know hard to do. One of the things that I noticed about it is that it has a lot of horses on it. It is a horse trail as well. But one of the pluses of the uh, Peninsula Trail is that it has a lot of side trails that hikers can take, actually, that have been developed uh, over the time that it's been there. Um, so, you know, if you don't want to go into the ruddy area where the horses have been, you can take that. So right. it's a very cool place. 
And how long is the trail? It is 10 miles, actually. Well, it's a little under 10 miles. I think it's like 9.6 mm -hmm. uh, when we used our uh, app on the phone. So, so 10-mile trail. And being in the, the Dean Wilderness, you can actually spend the night if you want it. That's correct. And there's plenty of places to camp as well. Of course, the great place to camp is the very edge of the lake, which is the tip of the trail. Uh, it's an out and back. And... Obviously, it's a beautiful place to camp. Uh, there's some really nice places out there on the edge of the lake to camp. And, of course, on the, the trail itself, uh, there are several campsites as well. Okay. How safe do you feel when you're um, hiking in the Deem? Would you recommend, like, for a woman? You know, as far as uh, safety goes, I think that it's probably one of the safer trails I've been on. There's a lot of people that are on the trail. Um, you run into quite a few people, so it's probably one of the more uh, heavily trafficked trails that we've been on in the Dean Wilderness. Thus oh, far. Great. Good to know. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. In this week's feature, WFHB's Norm Holy interviews IU Environmental Sciences Professor Dr. Jeffrey White on his research in the Arctic. It's Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Jeff White. He is at SPIA at IU. He is an expert on the Arctic. Would you explain to our listeners uh, what your research is intended to, to accomplish. Yes. Well, thanks, first of all, for uh, inviting me to participate in your program. My, my research program is focused uh, on how the Arctic landscape uh, is responding to the rapid warming that's occurring there because that's a critical piece of the larger set of uh, challenges, questions that we face uh, regarding future climate on Earth. Um, so uh, when we think about climate, Earth climate, it's hard to imagine that, the, that what happens in the Arctic actually affects the entire planet climate system, but it's in fact the case. There's lots of ways that those effects play out. Uh, one that I think many of your listeners would understand is that when snow and ice comes and goes, it uh, changes the reflectivity of Earth, and so that affects the Earth's uh, heat budget. So the more reflective the Earth's surface is, the less of the sun's energy is captured, the more is reflected back to space, called albedo. Um, and, uh, and that's a big part of Earth's energy budget, which drives its climate. One phenomenon, one that I do not directly study is the changing coverage of the earth um, by ice and snow that uh, that is happening fairly rapidly that uh, snow and ice cover is decreasing as the systems warm in the arctic and they as i said affect the energy budget by um, decreasing the reflectivity of the earth's surface the more energy is absorbed but uh, they're also affecting sea level rise um, the and specifically the large ice sheets that are land-bound ice sheets, the Greenland ice sheet in the northern hemisphere and the Antarctic ice sheet in the southern hemisphere. Those two are um, in a process of melting, this is net loss of ice, and that water that's melted from those ice sheets uh, moves ultimately to the ocean and leads to ocean sea level rise. So there are two components to sea level rise. Uh, one is the addition of water that's coming from these ice sheets, 
and the other is just thermal expansion. When water warms, it takes up greater volume. So both of those are contributing to the sea level rise that we're uh, currently seeing and which is projected to continue to accelerate. My research is actually focused on the non-ice-covered portions of the Arctic. Um, I'm interested in how, as permafrost thaws in these Arctic landscapes, um, there's carbon stored in those soils, um, in these frozen soils, which becomes activated as those soils warm. And that organic material that's stored in those soils has the potential to be decomposed to carbon dioxide and methane. Both are strong greenhouse gases. So um, one could imagine that if, if that carbon begins to get converted from soil carbon to atmospheric CO2 and methane, those greenhouse gases could add to a multiplying effect of the warming on Earth. So that is kind of a nutshell description of the, the work that I'm doing. So the modeling community is trying to improve their descriptions of the drivers of climate and uh, be able to more effectively predict future climate conditions. Uh, one of the components of the models, which is not well developed, is incorporating this conversion of stored carbon and permafrost soil um, and on these landscapes, incorporating the rate of conversion of that to greenhouse gases. The uh, global circulation models, um, these larger components of the climate system are uh, better well-known, well-constrained, but right now the current uh, climate models don't have the feedback that I described. And, and it's not there because they don't have enough information to be able to include those in a mathematical way. So what we're, our results are helping them to do is develop actual components to their models that would incorporate these effects in being able to quantify future carbon dioxide, future methane, and future temperature conditions as the Arctic warms. So it's called a positive feedback loop. Um, the warming generates more greenhouse gases, which begets more warming, and so you have this multiplier phenomenon. And as I said, currently the models uh, don't have uh, much in them uh, to incorporate those effects. I'd like to ask you about whether there are any um, methane hydrates actually on, on land uh, underneath, uh, say, the Greenland ice sheet. Is there enough pressure there to form those and they're retained in the soil, or are there no methane hydrates uh, land-based? I don't think that the methane hydrate story is uh, at all a significant um, land mass issue. These are uh, typically associated with the deeper ocean sediment environments. The uh, soil thickness in much of the Arctic um, is not sufficiently large. There's, you know, significant bedrock below. Uh, even though they're permafrost and frozen year-round uh, to great depths, hundreds of meters, you know, the soil system is not all that well-developed. It's not that deep in most places. So much of the hydrates are stored in these deep ocean sediments, deeper ocean sediments, and some of them have um, destabilized to release methane to the atmosphere through um, 
the, the bubbles that are released coming up through the water column and then entering the atmosphere. And that's a whole other story. That's not research that I do. Um, but there are certainly people studying using uh, acoustical systems, trying to determine what those, where those deposits are, and then uh, trying to study how stable or unstable they are in changing ocean conditions. Let me ask you about over your years of experience in the, in the Arctic, what visually are you seeing happening? Well, uh, there are a couple things that um, are quite striking on that landscape if you spend time there. The most dramatic is the receding ice sheet itself. So in Greenland, uh, we work right along the edge of the Greenland ice sheet. So we can see from our field area, we can see that ice sheet edge. We can also actually go right up to the edge of it and walk up onto the ice sheet from the landscape that we work on. And every time we go, and we, uh, we've been going both summer and winter, every time we go, the leading edge has receded, not just feet or yards, but hundreds of yards. Um, and it's not only the edge that is receding, but the whole ice sheet itself is deflating. So the total volume that you, that you see when you come up to the edge is, is, uh, is just deflated. And, of course, all of that is leaving as major flows in the rivers. Um, so we have to move from our, uh, the area that we work along the edge of the airfield. We, we have to move along a major river system that drains off the, the glacier. And during the summer months, um, we've also noticed extremely high flow rates in that river, um, unprecedented, actually, discharge flow rates in the rivers. So that's another visual to remind us of the drama that's taking place on the ice sheet itself. Uh, there's a bridge that uh, the local community has depended on for many, many years. It was built, I think, during World War II when the airfield was built. And uh, so that's what, early 1940s. And that bridge was swept away a couple of years ago after uh, some very heavy floods that came from the rapid melting of the ice sheet. Uh, so the ice sheet disappearance is a very dramatic thing to see. And then the other thing that we've noticed is that some of the plant cycles are changing. So when when uh, shrubbery is budding and, you know, caribou come through and eat the buds on, on these uh, stunted willow bushes, for example, and the timing of those that budding is, has, has actually disconnected from the, the normal patterns of migration of the caribou. So there are some ecology and biology that's observable as well as, as climate changes in the Arctic. Very interesting. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeff White today about changes in the Arctic. I really appreciate your comments. Thank you very much. Oh, you're, you're very welcome, Norm. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Now it's time for In Nature, written and recorded by EcoReport contributors past and present. This is In Nature. The 
have to turn the mic way up in order to pick up this sound, but it's the echolocation signal of the Indiana bat. Indiana bats live in hardwood forests and hardwood pine forests. It is common in old growth forests as well as agricultural land like croplands and old fields. Overall, the bats mostly live in forest, crop fields, and grasslands. As an insectivore, the bat will eat both terrestrial and aquatic flying insects like moths, beetles, and mosquitoes, and midges. The Indiana bat spends summer months living throughout the eastern United States. During winter, however, they cluster together and hibernate in only a few caves. Since about 1975, the population of Indiana bats has declined by about 50%. Based upon the 1985 census of hibernating bats, the Indiana bat population was estimated at 244,000. About 23% of the bats hibernated in caves in Indiana. The Indiana bat lives in caves only in winter, but there are few caves that provide the conditions necessary for hibernation. Stable, low temperatures are required to allow the bats to reduce their metabolic rates and conserve fat reserves. These bats hibernate in large, tight clusters which contain a, a few thousand individuals. You've been listening to In Nature. Coming up this week in our listening area, there will be a winter tree ID hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, December 8th from 2 to 2.30 p.m. Meet at the Canyon Inn to learn how to recognize trees without their leaves. Learn to hunt rabbit at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, December 8th from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. This workshop is designed for people wanting to learn the basics of rabbit hunting. It will include firearm safety, hunting with dogs, and how to process harvested game. Pre-registration is required through the Indiana DNR website. Join the Indiana Audubon Society for a two-hour introduction to eBird, a popular online birding resource and checklist. The event will be at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, December 8th, and run from 3 to 5 p.m. Bring a smartphone and binoculars for both indoor and outdoor activities. To register, contact B. Bumgardner at indianaaudubon.org. Open houses are scheduled for Indiana State Forests during the month of December. Learn how the Indiana DNR works to protect forests at Owen Putnam State Forest on Tuesday, December 11th. This event will have a short winter hike beginning at 4 p.m. Morgan Monroe State Forest will hold their open house on Wednesday, December 12th, with a tour of the renovated visitor center beginning at 4 p.m. The annual Christmas bird count is scheduled for Saturday, December 15th at Brown County State Park. It will start at 8.30 a.m. and run to 1.30 p.m. 
Come be a part of the largest citizen science program in the world. Meet at the Brown County State Park Nature Center, where you will divide into groups and head out into the park to look for and count birds. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our interim producer is Jan Walker. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to The Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.